James chapter 3 has unique imagery and unique language. Uh, it speaks of the tongue <clears throat> as something like an independent agent. This type of imagery is reminiscent of the, the imagery that the Savior himself used in his parables at different times. Uh, calling upon examples from, from nature and from practical life to illustrate concepts. James is doing something similar here. It calls to mind the relationship that James would have had with his half-brother, Jesus of Nazareth. And it makes me think of their mortal parentage, the mother that they had in common, and for the admiration that I have for Joseph. When you read about Joseph in the Gospels, a, a picture is painted of a man of great character, a meek man, and uh, clearly a spiritual man. Uh, and so I, I admire this family, uh, this family of Mary and Joseph. Uh, James chapter 3 uh, seems to be built around two central statements. Um, in verse 2, a perfect man is described. And in verse 13, a wise man is described. Going to verse 2, the second uh, phrase in this verse says, If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. And then in verse 13, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him shew out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. So we talk, first of all, about a man who does not offend in word. And then second of all, uh, he wraps up the chapter by talking about a man who is endued with wisdom. There's an element of drama in this chapter uh, as James does this because he first creates uh, a dissonance in your mind as, as he talks about the power of the tongue and the way in which it can steer us wrong, uh, and the way that it can cause harm. And it's something that we can all relate with, and so it creates this dissonance in the reader. And uh, like any good uh, work of literature, we then need a resolution to this drama. And we find, uh, because as the drama goes on in this chapter, we feel uh, perhaps less and less hope that uh, we could rein in our tongues and we might think of times when we have caused harm with our speech. But then we do come to a resolution of this drama, particularly in verses uh, 13, as I've mentioned, and also 17 and 18. So with that as kind of um, an outline or an introduction, let's go into these verses <clears throat> and read probably all of them. Very beautiful. My brethren, says verse 1, Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. <clears throat> verse 2, For in many things we offend all. Uh, so these verses are, are, are talking about our, our capacity to offend uh, by serving many and varied masters. Uh, 
and then he hones in on one particular topic. So that's an attention-getting statement, I believe, in verses 1 and 2. And then we get specific and talk about words. And James says, If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. A bridle brings, uh, brings about the image of uh, a beast, a horse in particular that can be steered. So it's a horse that has its own inherent power and ability to, to do good uh, if that horse is bridled. And uh, here James is talking about words being bridled, but there's a wonderful uh, passage where Alma in chapter 38 of Alma is giving counsel to Shiblon and tells him to bridle his passions. Uh, this was a topic that was near and dear to Alma, and as we circle back around to the idea of bridling our words, at one point uh, in chapter 12, Alma said that our words will condemn us. Uh, and so it's, it's serious business, you might say, for us to um, learn to bridle our tongues and to watch our words and more specifically to use our words uh, it, to bless and to create, which is something I'll come back to. Verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Uh, these uh, create different images, uh, different analogies, or different metaphors are, are, are put forward. Uh, so James has a, a masterful and wonderful way of, of teaching us about <clears throat> what the tongue is. And this is the portion I think that's so reminiscent of the Savior's style. In verse 3, James says, Behold, <clears throat> we put bits, so now we're talking about the bit in particular, in the horse's mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. So the same concept as a bridle. Behold, in verse 4, also the ships, which though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. So that, that governor can choose to turn the ship according to, even though it's a large ship, so great, and the winds are so fierce, just a little rudder can steer the direction of that ship. And that's what the tongue is like. In verse 5, we find that the tongue is like a fire, even so the tongue is a little member. So like the rudder, it's small, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Now a new image. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea, is tamed, and hath been tamed, of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. So we learn about a small fire that can uh, wreak havoc and destruction. And, and then it gets maybe even more pessimistic, you might say, in verses 7 and 8, where, where the tongue seems untamable uh, compared even to a beast that can be tamed to some degree. With those thoughts in mind, I want to recall the Savior's identity as the Word. And he introduces himself that way in 
in, in the, at the very beginning of the book of John, there's something really sacred and um, almost mysterious to me about how it is that uh, Jesus Christ is the Word. Um, I'm fascinated with the idea that he was shaped by the Word as he uh, grew from grace to grace. And, and how it is that his word was so uh, tied to his, to his actions. It seems as though uh, he, he, I think we can sense that our words have spiritual consequences. I think we can sense that, although we, we don't always appreciate the spiritual consequences of our words. Yet in the life of the Savior, we see that his words could also have immediate uh, temporal consequences. So we're about to go into a passage here where we talk about blessing versus cursing. And, and we know those have, have consequences, but in the case of the Savior, we see an instance where a man is in the congregation in Nazareth, and with with uttering the word, Jesus heals his withered hand. He is creating temporal circumstances on the spot through the power of his word. We later see him do the opposite to a fig tree, where through the power of his word, he creates destruction. And this, I think, is a truly remarkable thing to consider. Uh, could it be that we are in training and we are, we are training for a time when we have the perfection and attributes of God when one day we too will be so perfectly formed by the word that we can become the word and our words will be literal. I think there may be some truth to that. Uh, with that in mind, let's go to verses 9 and 10. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men. So is it possible to bless God but also curse men? James then says, which are made after the similitude of God. Well, if men are made after the similitude of God, then you're actually cursing God when you're cursing men. And this, of course, sounds like the teachings of Jesus when he says that inasmuch as ye shall do it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Verse 10, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. And he, he's also saying in the next few verses, these things can't be, really, because um, it's against the nature of things. Much like the way that the Savior said that uh, you'll, you'll know a tree by its fruits. James says, uh, uses the image of a fountain in verse 11, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? No, that's not possible. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs, 
so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Well, this is the end of the passage about the tongue. And the end of the passage that is built, I believe, again, around this statement in verse 2, of what it is that makes a perfect man. And that's the man, again, that can bridle his tongue and offend not in word. Uh, this is something that we all aspire to. Uh, we fall short frequently. Uh, and, so, and so this chapter, as I've mentioned earlier, is a little bit troubling. Um, but there is some balm to follow in the next few verses. I first want to talk about this concept of falling short for just one moment, though. And, and, and one thought is to consider the life of James. We know from the seventh chapter of John that uh, if that was James who was speaking in that chapter, that he was kind of taunting his half-brother, Jesus, about needing to go to the Feast of Tabernacles, where almost as if to say at least there might be some there that believe him. Uh, so when we read about James um, speaking ill, uh, he, he himself knows what it feels like to be in the falling short category of this. He, he, is, he, 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 is, he, he knows what that's like. Uh, here's a great statement by Jeffrey R. Holland. And this is from a general conference talk uh, entitled The Tongue of Angels. Uh, it's an, kind of an expansion upon what James is, um, is, is, is saying and kind of a contemporary application of it. Husbands, you have been entrusted with the most sacred gift God can give you, a wife, a daughter of God, the mother of your children, who has voluntarily given herself to you for love and joyful companionship. Think of the kind things you said when you were courting. Think of the blessings you have given with the hands, with your hands placed lovingly upon her head. And then reflect on other moments characterized by cold, caustic, unbridled words. A husband who would never dream of striking his wife physically can break, if not her bones, then certainly her heart by the brutality of thoughtlessness or unkind speech. Wives, what of the unbridled tongue in your mouth, of the power for good or ill in your words? How is it that such a lovely voice could ever in a turn be so shrill, so biting, so acrid and untamed? A woman's words can be more piercing than any dagger ever forged, and they can drive the people they love to retreat beyond a barrier more distant than anyone in the beginning of that exchange could ever have imagined. So Elder Holland is doing the same thing here. He's troubling us. He's, he's making us feel the tension and the dissonance that comes when we consider how frequently we fall short uh, with this task of bridling our tongue and calls to mind, as I mentioned earlier, the very, uh, the very direct spiritual consequences of cursing versus the very direct spiritual consequences of blessing. And uh, those are that blessing is a way of creating, and we can create spiritual consequences with our words, and ultimately one day, like the Savior perhaps, we can create temporal consequences with our words as well. Well, here's the last passage, and 
this starts to help us see some hope. Verse 13 reads, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him shew out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. So that's something that we can do. Maybe we can't have the perfection of the Savior who didn't make a misstep in mortality. And so when James talks about the perfect man in verse 2, maybe that can't quite be us just yet, but perhaps we can still be that wise man. And maybe that's what James is saying. Uh, Maybe we're not ready for the time in which our words create literal temporal results. It calls to mind the, the verse, I think it's in section 50, where we're told that we're little children still and we can't bear all things just yet. So it's part of mortal probation to be able to practice. Well, we learn about two wisdoms in the following verses. The first, as uh, we read in verse 15, is an earthly or sensual or a devilish wisdom. And the second wisdom is described in verse 17, and that's a wisdom from above. So let me read those verses. Verse 14, But if ye have bitter envying, and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So this completes a picture of us, uh, I think, as independent agents who really must choose to bridle our tongues and learn how to do that. Uh, However, the broader context of this as James points out in these final verses, is that there are indeed powers that are beyond our own. Uh, There's a power from above, and there is such a thing as a power from belief. And it is up to us to choose which power we follow. And our words will steer us in a direction that leads to one power or pays obedience to one power versus another. As Alma said in in chapter 3 of the book of Alma, if I'm remembering this correctly, we will receive wages from that spirit from whom we listeth to obey.